Our time in the Word today will impact you differently, depending on what kind of person you are. I would suggest on a normal Sunday morning, especially this time of the year, Palm Sunday, Easter, when church attendance ticks up a bit, barring ice storms, I would suggest that we primarily have the following four classes of people. First, fully devoted followers of Jesus. Not in name, but truly fully devoted followers. And you can say that Christ is your treasure. Second, we have people who profess Christ but don't truly know Christ. So I understand that 78% of people in the United States call themselves Christians. At some point in your life, perhaps you prayed a prayer, made a profession of faith, and you occasionally or maybe even regularly show up at church. But in your heart of hearts, if you were honest, you seldom give Jesus a thought from Monday to Saturday. I would, I would like to talk to you today, but you think yourself already a Christian and your self-deception may blind you. I pray not. Third, we have people who don't know Christ but are interested. I will be speaking to you today. My prayer this week, my earnest prayer this week has been that God will open your heart to respond to the message why not today? You have been contemplating Christianity. Why not trust Christ today? Fourth, we have people who don't know Christ and are not interested. Come because it's the time of the year. I, I would like to speak to you as well, but your disinterest may prevent you from hearing. I actually don't know why you're here other than the sovereign control of God. And so my prayer has been that God will open your hardened heart to hear today. In fact, my prayer has been that you will leave surprised, different than you came, changed. So who are you? committed follower, self-deceived professing follower, interested non-follower, disinterested non-follower. Can I tell you for at least three of those classes of people, your eternity hangs in the balance. Oh, you may have an opportunity to get things right later. But you may not. My hope is that since we have no assurance of tomorrow, listen, either physically or spiritually, today you will not harden your heart. And I will give you an opportunity at the end of our time together to respond. Call it an invitation to believe, to trust Christ for your eternal salvation. 
The text is Hebrews chapter 4 in our continuing study, first seven verses of that chapter. Read it with me. Therefore, let us fear. Now, you, you may have the NIV, which inexplicably and frankly irresponsibly softens that language. They have it, let us be careful. I, I don't know why. That is not what it says. It says, the words are, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, the Israelites, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. The rest was available is what that means. And he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Listen, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, David said it. A thousand years before this author quotes it, long time ago he said it, he says it again, and 2,000 years later we say it again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Our outline will simply ask and answer the following questions, questions that I plead with you to answer for yourself. What is this fear and why? Do we fear? What is this rest and how do we enter it and how do we miss it? What is this good news and how is it united by faith and how is it not? You will remember that we are in the middle of a severe, severe warning passage. The the second of five such passages in Hebrews. The first was found in In chapter 2, where the author said, do not neglect this great salvation and thereby drift from it. Pay close attention to it. It would be hard to imagine having something of inestimable value, a priceless painting, a breathtaking sculpture, a, a, a treasure of irreplaceable value, and not value it, not appreciate it, not guard it. We lock our houses. We lock our cars. Well, maybe not in Boone. We have safe deposit boxes. Should we not also guard that which is of highest value? We, don't, we, we should not neglect it, else it be gone is the idea. Then in chapter 3, having demonstrated the superiority of Jesus over Moses, the author compares 
the, the Old Testament people of God, specifically the Israelites and their exodus from, from Egypt and, and subsequent 40-year wilderness wanderings, he, he compares them to us. Now, now, why did they wander? Why did they not enter the land? Why did their corpses fall in the wilderness? The last verse of chapter 3 says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Remember when we looked at that, they had seen it all, they had heard it all, but they did not believe, and they died. Just as God swore in His wrath, they will never enter, never is a long time. They will never enter my rest. The author uses the example of the unbelieving Israelites to warn us. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you, not one, we don't want to leave, leave one behind, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 4, therefore. Having been reminded of the failures of the Israelites to enter God's rest, let us fear that we might come short of entering His rest as well. Now remember, the author is writing to professing Jewish believers and, and to us, warning us not to commit apostasy, warning us not to depart from the Christian faith, to not treat it as a treasure of eternal priceless value. So now he says, let us fear, plural. Let every one of us, including himself as the writer, let us fear, lest any one of you, singular, any one of you may seem to come short of his rest. Immediately, some of you say, now wait just a minute. Christians do not have to live in fear, right? Christians do not have to live in fear of God's judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't miss the qualifying phrase, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what if you are not? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, the, the author will later tell us. A fearful thing. Fear that. But, but, but you say, are, are you suggesting that we live uh, in constant fear of our salvation? I, I thought Paul told Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and, and discipline. But in that context, what is it that we are not to fear? It's fear of opposition for the gospel. You see, the very next verse says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. That's the power that He gave you. So, so don't fear suffering is what He is saying. God has given you a spirit of power, love, discipline. Don't fear suffering. You say, I don't think I like this, this idea, this warning to fear. I don't think you should be frightening us, Scott. Okay, I won't. I'll let Hebrews do it. You see, your argument is not with me. Your argument is with this Holy Spirit-inspired author who says we should fear. 
And there are other places in the New Testament which suggest the very same thing. We must not wrench verses out of the context. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one, that's God, who after he has killed, that's interesting, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Interesting passage. How many times have you heard God is a God of love? He doesn't kill anybody, really. He doesn't make anybody sick. Oh, yeah? You ever heard that before? Here's my personal favorite. God does not cast anyone into hell. You do. God doesn't cast anyone into hell. Your sin does. Really. We try to sanitize God, make Him more humanly palatable by removing His holy anger and just retribution. We must not do that. Fear God, the one who casts sinners into hell. You say, well, who is... To whom is Jesus speaking here? Is it believers or unbelievers? That's the whole point. In Hebrews, fear that you are not an unbel- uh, that you are not a believer. Fear that you are actually an unbeliever. That you miss entering God's rest because of actual unbelief. Fear that. Further, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, So then, my brothers, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but, how much, uh, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, well, well what does that mean? Well, it does not mean that we work to pro- provide salvation, but it sure does mean that we work to prove our salvation and we work it out with fear and trembling to prove that it is real. We don't want it to be not real. Further in Romans 11, Paul writes, speaking of these Israelites who who did not believe and therefore as part of an olive tree, unproductive branches were broken off. Quite right, he says. They were broken off. Why? For their unbelief. But I thought they were God's chosen people. I thought they were the children of God. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You, Gentiles, you stand by faith. Do not be conceited. Fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Not if you fall into unbelief. You too will be broken off. You're not in because you're part of the people of God. You're in because of belief. So this is troubling. Does this mean I go through my Christian life wondering, fearful, concerned that I'm not really saved, that I've lost my salvation? No, not at all. It is not that kind of fear. Rather, it is a careful self-attention, listen, that verifies the truth of my faith. It is found in uniting this good news, whatever that is, with faith and testing it constantly and proving it and guarding it. This is what he is saying. 
And so one author suggested to think of it this way. It is like the mountain climber who tests his equipment regularly, his ropes, his carabiners, his, his gloves, his climbing shoes. He would be foolish, you see, to not regularly pay attention to those things. So also with us. Our salvation is secure as we persevere in the faith, but, but we pay attention Just like he said in the first warning, don't neglect it. Don't neglect your salvation. Just like he says in this warning, take care that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving heart. Encourage one another. This is so serious that we need to be involved in each other's lives. Encourage one another that no one be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To do so, listen, to neglect your salvation, to not take care of yourself, to not encourage each other could result in a precipitous fall from the mountain from the living God. That's what he says. So who are you today? Committed follower? Self-deceived professor? Occasionally gives a thought to Jesus? Interested Non-follower, disinterested non-follower, distracted by the stuff of this life as if there is eternal value there. The only thing we need fear is faithlessness, unbelief. Because it is true that He has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity in our witness, but of power, love, and and discipline. It is also true that this same author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 2 that through His death, Jesus rendered powerless the one who had the power of death, that, that is the devil, that He might free those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we do not fear death. We do not fear an uncertain eternity. No, we fear what? Unbelief. Faithlessness. We fear falling away. That's what he says. True, as I suggested last week, we cannot if we have His Spirit by whom we persevere. We cannot if we have become partakers of Christ. So, Live in faithful self-attention to your salvation and others' attention, encouraging and helping each other along the way. Why is it that so many are walking away? Lack of faith. Lack of self-attention. Lack of others' attention. It should grieve us that some who were with us are no longer. It leads to the next question. What is this rest he encourages us to enter? The author uses this word ten times in this warning from chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13. Twice back in chapter 3, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And how were they disobedient? Verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. There was an, a disobedience of unbelief. They had seen it all. They had heard it all. Enjoyed the benefits of being among the people of God. 
And they did not combine what they heard with faith. Therefore, chapter 14, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Again, what is this rest? He goes on to mention it seven more times in this chapter. It is a key concept. For the Israelites, it was entrance into the land of promise. It was entrance into the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised, given to Abraham, given to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was theirs for the taking, but they did not enter because of unbelief. Now, in a couple of weeks, the week after Easter, we're going to find that the next generation, in fact, did enter. Joshua led them in. Did they then find rest? Not necessarily. It's not the ultimate rest that our author is talking about here. No, even the land of promise was a picture. It was a type pointing to something much greater, a greater rest that still remains as a promise to who? To those who believe. A rest offered by God to them and to us, to us through Jesus Christ. Now, this Offered rest is both relational and spatial. What do I mean by that? That, Like the Israelites, land of promise, there is a place of rest for us. Later, the author will call it a city with foundations, a a country of our own, a homeland, a a heavenly one, the, the, the city of the living God, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a lasting city to come. My favorite, the city whose architect and builder is God. Most agree that this is a reference to the new heavens and the new earth to come. Our ultimate place of rest is, is in relationship with God in heaven. And, and, and the author is saying, do not come short of that. Don't come short of entering heaven. And we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks because I do want you to understand that there is a sense in which we enter His rest now by faith. But brothers and sisters, not yet in its fullness. Something much greater is coming. Don't miss it. I know it's tough. It was, it was tough for his readers. It's worth it. Something much greater is coming. For now, please notice the promise of entering his rest still remains. It's interesting. It was offered to them, children of Israel, and it is now offered to us. For indeed, verse 2, we've had the good news preached to us just as they also Interesting, the word for good news is the word gospel. They had received the gospel, the good news of entrance into the land of promise, where as God's chosen people, they would rest in His presence by having fellowship with Him. We too have had the good news, the gospel preached to us. What is the good news preached to us? That by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we too can enter rest. We can enter into a right relationship and fellowship with God. We can rest in His sovereign goodness and grace and control in our lives. We can actually be in relationship with the God of the universe, the the, the one against whom we have willingly rebelled. But by the work of Christ, we can be forgiven, redeemed, and restored. That is the gospel. And we've heard it, haven't we? For some of us over and over, and over and over. And my question is, are your hearts hardened? Are they, do you harbor contempt 
because of familiarity. Look at the rest of verse 2. The word that they heard did not profit them, Israelites, because they, it was not united by faith to those who heard, in those who heard. They had heard God's good promises. They had seen God's good provision. Water from a rock. Manna from heaven. But all they did was grumble and complain. The one thing that they did not do, they drank, they ate. The one thing they did not do was believe, and so they did not enter His rest. Rather, they died in the wilderness in what? Unbelief. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest right now. Doesn't that sound good? God's rest is only for those who believe. We'll come back to that. Notice the rest of the verse. For we who have believed enter that rest. Then the author takes a bit of a right turn again. Just as he, that is God, has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Why did they not enter the rest? Because of unbelief. This is the second of three times that he will quote Psalm 9511. It is important to the author and it is important to us. Knowing the truth, being exposed to the truth week after week and believing the truth are two different things. Verses 3 and 4 continue, they shall not enter my rest, although his works... God's work were finished from the foundation of the world, for He said somewhere, Genesis 2-2 to be exact, concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. That's a bit confusing as you're reading in your Bible reading. What does this mean? Well, if, if, first it means when God finished His work, He, he rested. His work of what? His work of creation. It's very interesting to note at the end of the first six days of creation, that they are summed up with the morning and the evening were the first day. The morning and the evening were the second day, etc. But on the seventh day, there is no mention made of morning and evening. Why? Because God's work in creation was finished and He has rested from then on. Now, this does not mean that God is not working. Jesus says that His Father and, in fact, He are working in John chapter 5. The point is, he finished his creation, and the invitation to enter rest with him in his finished creation remains. It's what Adam and Eve did, did they not? Oh, they worked, right? To till the garden, to work the garden was, was, was given to them as a responsibility, but they walked with God in the cool of the day. They were walked in fellowship, and the invitation remains to be forgiven and restored, to walk with Him in fellowship. It remains for those who believe, which begs an important question. So, okay, this can be, it sounds a bit challenging. What does it mean then to believe? I, I believe, do you? How do we combine what we hear with faith so that it is effective and brings salvation. Your eternity hangs in the balance, you see. It's incredibly important today 
for group number two that I mentioned, those of you who come occasionally or maybe even regular, regularly, maybe you even made a profession of faith, but you know there is no real spiritual life there. You know it in your heart of hearts. Let me explain what theologians call three levels of faith. I've shared this with you before. It bears repeating at this point. First level of faith or belief is to have a knowledge of the facts. Theologians call this notitia, which is Latin and means knowledge or content or information. I like that one, information. To have notitia is to have information of the facts about Jesus. Any world history class worth its tuition will teach about a man named Jesus of Nazareth. If they skip Jesus, it's not a good world history class. man named Jesus of Nazareth lived about 2,000 years ago and frankly changed the world. But having knowledge about Jesus, that he was a man who was purported by his followers to be the Son of God, who did seemingly undeniable miracles, who was put to death by the Romans on a cross and who was purported to have been raised from the dead and was the founder of this religion called Christianity, to have that information is not saving faith. Having knowledge of the facts does not save you, which leads us to the second level of faith titled in the Latin as a census. And, and we could define that as belief. Good. I would say this is where the wilderness Israelites were, (laughs) meaning not only have you heard the facts about Jesus, you actually believe the facts are true. That's why you show up on occasion. You believe He was the Son of God. You actually believe He did some miracles. You actually believe that He died on a cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. Can I suggest to you, alarmingly, that that is not necessarily saving faith? You see, my concern is that churches across America, 78% perhaps, are full of that kind of people, people who are okay with Jesus, who are okay with Christians and even receive some temporal benefit from church, from other Christians, water from a rock, manna from heaven. But having knowledge of the facts and even believing the facts are true is not necessarily saving faith. Group two. See, we arrive at the third level of faith, true saving faith, which the theologians call fiducia, which is the Latin word for faith, and it involves this key component called trust. Not only have you heard the facts, not only do you believe the facts, but you believe or trust that the facts are true for you. Do you see the difference? The gospel has invaded your heart, has consumed your life, and you are trusting Jesus and His finished work on the cross for your salvation alone. In the words of 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Fiducia is to fly to Christ and embrace Him. I do want to remind you that the power of faith is not in your trust, but in the object of your trust. 
many struggle, perhaps you do, with whether or not uh, you were saved based on whether or not you believed rightly. Is my faith or my trust strong enough? Do I believe the right things? Did I say the right words when I prayed the prayer? And so just to be sure, you pray the prayer over and over. My wife's grandmother, glorious, wonderful woman, prayed the prayer every day just to be sure. Not kidding. Make sure you say it right. Can I tell you that your salvation is not dependent on the strength of your faith, but in the strength of the one believed? But it is combined with faith. I don't want to talk you into being saved. I do not want to talk you out of being saved. But I will say this. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, not with perfect, unwavering, never-doubting faith, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was raised again the third day, and you are trusting Him and Him alone for your salvation, if you have surrendered to Him as Lord of your life, and you value Him as your greatest treasure, then you are saved. (laughs) But it is those last ones that get us, making Him Lord of our lives and valuing Him over all. Oh, I I want to use Jesus as a fire escape, but I want to live my own self-possessed, self-focused life. That will not do. Group two. Two familiar passages for you to recall. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, It is interesting to note that Jesus is referred to as Savior 17 times in the New Testament and as Lord over 400 times. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, for with a heart a person believes. You see, it's more than just a head knowledge of the facts. It is driven into your heart. You trust Him with all of your being, resulting in righteousness. You see, true faith changes you. And with a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. We usually stop there, but the passage continues. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him, truly trusts in him, will not be disappointed. So if you are doubting, wavering, struggling, I want you to hear these words. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the power of salvation lies not in the power of your faith, of you saying the words just right. It lies in the power of the one you trust. But it is found in trust. Another couple verses, 1 John 5. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm not going to get deeply into the, these things which John has written, had written, but suffice it to say he was referring to faith in Jesus as God in the flesh, which results in loving other Christians and seeking Monday through Saturday to be obedient to Jesus as Lord. Then comes the next verse. This is the confidence we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, He hears us, and He saves us, is the idea. Again, I am not trying to talk you out of being saved or into being saved this morning, but I do not want you to be deceived. If you are trusting Jesus for your salvation, taking confidence in the fact the powerful Savior has heard you and saved you, then rest. 
Your salvation is not dependent on the purity or power of your faith, but in the power of His cross and resurrection. But if you have believed, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, signed a card, but the gospel has not changed your life, if you seldom give thought to Jesus as your greatest treasure, my concern, in fact, my fear, is that you will not enter His rest in heaven. Which brings us to the last two verses of our text. I need you to listen, those who profess faith but do not live faith, as well as those who are considering the claims of Christ, as well as those who may be here, incredibly, on this icy Sunday, who are disinterested I beg you, I plead with you to consider these words. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter, who? Those who trust in Christ. And since those who formerly had good news preached to them, just like you have had today and many other days, but failed to enter because of disobedience defined as disbelief, he again, again, and again, fixes a certain day. Which day? Today. Saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, over and over again, today, if you hear His voice, if you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you to believe the gospel, to believe the good news, do not harden your hearts. Believe. I do not want to enter his rest in heaven and not find you there. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sounds good. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus' invitation. Come to me. This is my invitation to you today. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come make their way to the platform, and I'm going to ask um, some of our elders to come and stand here at the front with their wives, and I'm going to give an invitation this morning. I know we don't normally do this, but I'm going to give an invitation to you to believe. And I'm, I'm giving an invitation to two groups of people this morning. F first of all, maybe you're here and you feel convicted about, you know that you're a Christian, but you feel convicted about not valuing Jesus as your highest treasure, your greatest treasure, your priceless treasure. And maybe it's time that you plant a stake in the ground and say, my life is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, my life is going to be different. I'm going to begin living for him. Maybe you want to just pray where you are. Maybe you want to come. You don't have to pray with one of these people. There's nothing special about them. Maybe you just want to bow here at the front. And you say, well, why, why do I have to? Why can't, you, you can. You can pray where you are. But maybe you just pray here as a public commitment to say, I'm going to start living for Christ. I've not been. I'm going to. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can pray for you as you're praying. That's the first group. But maybe the second 
group of people that I would invite to respond are those of you who are not Christians. Come week after week and you've never truly trusted. How do I know you've never trusted? Because you don't give Jesus a thought on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or the rest of the week. You pull yourself together on Sunday. That's not the Christian faith. And I invite you to repent and to give your lives in faith to Jesus Christ. And we would love to pray with you and help walk with you as you do that. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I have to tell you that knowing that I was preaching this sermon, I was a bit discouraged about the weather. But I trust God. And I trust his sovereign control. And I trust that he has the people here who needed to be here today. So Father, by your spirit, I ask that you would help people to respond. To respond the first time to the gospel and to be gloriously saved. Or to repent of a backslidden heart that is not walking faithfully, but that you would help them by your spirit to do so. In Jesus' name.